Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast, Issues under the Final Section 199A Regulations, held on February 12, 2019. The panelists for the webcast were George Manusos, a partner in PwC's Federal Tax Services Group, Adam Fierstein, a partner in PwC's Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and the firm's National Real Estate Tax Technical Leader, Michael Hosworth, a director in the Mergers and Acquisitions Group, and Sherry Foreman, a partner in PwC's Private Company Services Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the allocation, aggregation, netting, and reporting rules. Have a listen. All right, Sherry, let me hand it off to you. I think kind of a sleeping dog of all of 199 Cafe as we talk about carving up trades or businesses, right? Because that might get us a better answer. But if I have one trade or business and I'm now carving up into three trades or businesses, but I operate all out of one building, how do I allocate the, ex- the depreciation expense amongst all of that? How do I allocate the CEO salary amongst all of that? You want to help navigate us through that, if sure. you can. <laughs> sure. So the requirements actually require that you allocate both ink van expenses. So there are several parts of this yep. that you need to look at. Yep. But I think, you know, there was a lot of commentary and requests for some safe harbors in this area. Um, you know, the proposed rules described a reasonable methodology. There was some requests to get some more guidance and some more clarity on what would be reasonable. Um, those those requests were rejected. Um, 861 was suggested as a po- possible alternative. That was rejected in terms of its use. I think specifically because it's really focused on deductions and not income, so they wanted something all-inclusive. Um, what is consistent, I think, or what is reasonable, we know that um, based upon the commentary, reasonable can mean different things for different items. So you need to look at different items of expenses and income and figure out what works for you and what makes sense from a clear representation in terms of those allocations. Um, so one of the areas that we did want to spend a little bit of time talking about, so if we um, kind of move along to the foreign source income, is, is I've been spending a lot of time asking George questions on this. I think about one of the areas that I think has a lot of complication is when I have items of income that are ECI and non-ECI. And oftentimes in a partnership or an S-corp structure, those are, those are owned or that activity is in a disregarded entity because that's most efficient for other reasons. So we've spent a little bit of time thinking about how do I allocate my income when I have those types of activities and can I have separate trader businesses um, if I have a DRE structure. So um, the final regulations actually clarified that a trader business of a DRE is deemed to be conducted directly by its owner. So, so that means that, that that entity, if you will, is disregarded, but it can still be a separate trader business. Um, so what we've been trying to think through is what does that mean in this context? If you think about the um, general federal income tax consequences, I have a disregarded entity, so my intercompany transactions are disregarded. So do I need to go back and then reallocate those based on the trader business concepts? Um, you know, the thing that we've been kicking around is whether or not that really matters. So if I have intercompany transactions and I reallocate those to my separate trader business DREs, does that change the sourcing and the outcome of that? Um, so I, th- I think um, we've got a couple of ex- examples mm-hmm. that I wanted to walk through that we've really used just to kind of kick this around and determine the consequences. So in our example, we've, we've assumed that I have disregarded entities. So this activity that I'm going to reference is in a disregarded entity with U.S. business. 
So um, it, it kind of illustrates the sourcing rules because those have significantly changed as well. So I wanted to illustrate that and then talk through the implications. Um, so in example one, we have a US manufacturer of goods and services that sells to a foreign subsidiary. So in this circumstance, the US is the manufacturer, sells, sells overseas. That intercompany transaction is eliminated because it's a disregarded entity. So in sourcing that, the new rules would say that I look to who manufactures that product. So my sourcing is now based on the manufacturing rather than title transfer, as we're kind of used to seeing previously. So in that example, my manufacturer is US, my activity is manufacturing, my, um, that whole transaction would be ECI and sourced, it would be US sourced in that example. Um, so if I contrast that with example two, I have the reverse where my foreign manufacturer is the one producing the product. So I have my foreign subsidiary doing all the manufacturing, selling to the US. Again, I've eliminated that transaction. So when I'm analyzing from an ECI perspective what the sourcing is, I look to the manufacturing of those goods, and in this case, it's foreign. So that entire transaction becomes foreign sourced and non-ECI. So we've been trying to understand and kick around based upon the new regulations, does anything change if I took those activities and allocated those to separate trades or businesses? Does my analysis around ECI change and could I change the impact and the qualification for 199A? So based on some um, informal conversations that we've had with the government, the intent was that ECI would be determined first and separate from 199A. So I think in this example, we would look at our analysis, which was done irrespective of 199A. In my first scenario, I have all ECI. So if I have a US manufacturer, that income from US to ultimate third-party sale is ECI and qualifies for 199A. In the second example, where I have my foreign manufacturer, I get the reverse, um, the reverse impact, where none of it is ECI and none of it qualifies for 199A. Um, so I think this is an important understanding these, to understand. The rules are really complex in terms of the new sourcing rules. So we've gone through really simple examples to try to illustrate this, but likely everybody has different activities. And so understanding all those product flows, how they get sourced, and the impact is going to be extremely important. Right. And the whole treatment of whether it's ECI, nothing in 199 about that. That's Section right. 864 and, and 865, 866, things like that. Um, a no, whole new set of rules you're going to have to determine to understand whether or not that income is even qualifying or not. So you need to go outside of 199 Cap A for a lot of different provisions. This is a perfect example of it. Yeah, and I think, George, when I was originally thinking about this, I was thinking we'd look at branch income and exclude it, right? right? Very different outcome in Absolutely. these examples. Yep. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. Sherry, I want to ask you one quick question. Um, with the lack of allocation apportionment rules, one example I know we kicked around beforehand was interest expense. You want to just kind of educate folks a little bit or advise them on how would I allocate something like interest expense? Or I have rules in other places and nothing in 199 Cap A. What should I look to? Yeah, I, th I think there's going to be a lot of complexities where there's rules otherwise that you need to take into consideration. So interest was one we were talking about because the rules at the individual level, depending upon ownership or, or the owner level, depending on ownership, can vary. And, and how you allocate that interest to your very act various activities can depend upon how much you own. So do you have to take that into consideration when you think about 199A? I think, you, you know, we're still working through the mechanics and, and how we're going to take that into account if we get a different result. Yep. And 861 has rules on allocating interest expense as well. So I could mm -hmm. look there. I can look to 163J. Somewhere else it's reasonable. And 
that's the technical side. Then I have the administrative side, right? Do I want different rules for different code sections? Right. Are they all reasonable or do I need consistency? Consistency is obviously easier from an administrative perspective, but is it optimal from a financial economic perspective? All right, well, Mike, let me hand it off to you to talk about some of the aggregation and reporting rules. We've got a lot of relief here, so please walk us through that. Sure. Um, just a quick refresher on the way that this worked under the proposed regulations. A lot of this remained the same with one key change that we'll go into. That The general way that this works is that each RPE or relevant pass-through entity, and that's going to be any entity that has ultimately indirectly an individual or a trust that as an owner that could benefit from the 199A deduction, that entity has to pass through the information through all the tiers of, of intermediate entities um, to allow the individual or the trust at the top to ultimately make the 199A calculation to determine what its combined qualified business income is. And in order to do that, to make that calculation and to apply the, the thresholds and the limitations that we've talked about, the business basically has to report up, I think of it as, as four pieces of information. How much qualified business income is there with respect to this separate trade or business? What is this owner's allocable share of the W-2 wages from this separate trade or business? What is the owner's share of UBIA from this separate trade or business? And is this separate trade or business a specified service trade or business? Under the proposed regulations, the aggregation regime that was introduced that allowed um, an individual or a trust all the way at the top of the ownership chain to say that where there are trades or businesses that are under common control somewhere within the chain, um, if those trades or businesses are functionally related, and that means meeting two of three tests for functional relatedness, I get to aggregate them. And the bottom line is that the benefit is that you can borrow UBIA or W-2 wages from one of those aggregated trades or businesses. So disaggregated data under the proposed regs got pushed all the way up and only the individual could make that aggregation decision. Under the final regs, they've moved that decision about where the aggregation can be done down the chain of ownership so that an RPE, a relevant pass-through entity, can make that aggregation decision with respect to commonly controlled trades or businesses that it owns. Um, and that makes a lot of sense, right? The RPE is probably going to be in the better position to know whether those functional relatedness tests have been met. Um, the general information reporting rules haven't changed that much. The uh, RPE still has to report up to owners on a K-1 um, their allocable share of QBI, W-2 wages, and UBIA. Uh, again, whether any trader business is an SSTB, um, they have to flow through information from lower tier RPEs and then also report up information about um, REITs and PTPs that are owned uh, within the structure. Um, the, when an RPE makes the decision to aggregate, some of that information reporting burden is relieved. Uh, the aggregated businesses can report up as a single number that aggregated um, uh, QBI, aggregated W-2 wages, and UBIA, um, but you still have to list out, or the RPE that is aggregating those trades or businesses still has to list out the identifying information for all of those separate trades or businesses. 
Now we've simplified the reporting here for four little bullets. I think if you actually try and visualize a white paper, you're going to have a line item for each trade or business, and then you're gonna have a columns across for each of these different pieces of information. And the more trader businesses that roll up, the more line items you're gonna be doing, on, especially on the upper level. So there's no specific uh, magic white paper. There's no guidance on how you do that, but this summarizes all the information that needs to be passed out. So it could become voluminous, especially for tiered structures. And I think this just illustrates uh, what's been put on the K-1 or in the instructions to the K-1 for purposes of identifying these separate items. And as you noted, George, where you've got multiple separable trades or businesses, you're going to have to duplicate these items for each one of those trades yep. or businesses. Exactly. Yep. Great. Thank you, Mike. Adam, let me hand it off to you to, uh, to go over some of the netting rules when you've got positive QBI, negative QPI, aggregate versus non-aggregate. If you can walk us through these final rules here. Sure. And, and this is the, the aggregation sort of the, I view as being the other end of the spectrum of, of trying to um, separate out businesses, which we talked about a lot before, where you might want to separate out businesses to um, make it so an SSTV doesn't taint a non-SSTV or vice versa. Here, we might have separate businesses, and we wish they were treated as one business, because as Mike alluded to before, we might want the unadjusted basis and W-2 wages that are really in one, what I'll call, activity to offset another, uh, to be able to justify a deduction for income from another activity. The two ways you do that is, one, you get comfortable they're a single business, which, which you might be able to do. But if you can't get comfortable with that, then you need to use these aggregation rules really to accomplish the same thing. I mean, one of the key things to note about netting is whether you aggregate or not, you still have to take your negative, your losses from a, from a, um, from a, from a trader business that would be eligible and offset it against income anyway. So it's not as though you can increase your, your, your eligible income by disaggregation. It really generally is only beneficial and it lets you take your, your, unadjusted basis and W-2 wages from one business and effectively lets you use it to justify your deduction for the income from it from another business. Adam, thank you very much. Um, maybe each of us can go over what our key takeaway here is. Um, I think for me personally, I'd say we walk through what the different steps are, right? Identify what your trades or businesses are, figure out which trades or businesses qualify and don't qualify. Maybe I have to go back to the drawing board or continue on. Allocate my revenue and expenses if I need to, figure out the QBI, W-2 wages and the like. Do all the reporting, my white paper and my K-1 disclosures. Then unfortunately at the individual level, you gotta mush all that stuff together. So methodical process here. Mike, let me start with you about key takeaway today. I'd say a key takeaway is that the decision to move the aggregation rule down to the level of the RPE is going to put some more pressure on advisors in the short term. Those decisions about whether to aggregate have to be made consistently from year to year uh, unless there's a change in facts. So in this first year, when we're just starting to figure out um, which trades or businesses our client has, we now also have to figure out, are those trades or businesses functionally related such that they can be aggregated and reported up together? Great. Sherry? I, th I think about the allocating of expenses and income. It's complicated and it affects so many other areas. So I think particularly if you have foreign activity, you need to think about what you're doing with respect to your foreign source income and your allocations there. 
You need to think about what you may be doing for 163J. So I think you need to consider where this occurs in other parts of the code and think about the impacts of that. Like you mentioned earlier, George, administratively, it would be best to use the same methodology consistently, but that may not give you the best answer. So I think getting started early, understanding where this is impactful and getting those calculations done is really important. Adam? So now we have final regulations, and so I think a constant discussion that I had with, with clients is that the, they were awaiting for final regulations. How do we know if we should move businesses around or hold them in different entities if we don't even know what the final rules are and we might move stuff around, we might decide to organize things differently, and then the rules will tell us to do something else. So I think a lot of people were on the sidelines, particularly when it comes to specified service trades or businesses and deciding what's a separate business, how do I determine if they're separate businesses, should I reorganize my companies so they're in separate entities based you know, on the comments that we've been talking about today. And I see certainly an acceleration of people now that we have final rules really digging in and saying, okay, what are my types of income? What is a specified service trade or business? What might not be? And, and how can I organize things differently if I'm not getting that, that good answer that, right. I, that I thought right. I was going to get yeah. based on my activities? Yeah. One final point that I meant to make before is what we've seen a lot of is that with RPEs, or partnership you know, pass-through entities now looking to carve things up into different trades or businesses, that can have some benefits. It can also have some detriments. A partner right now is getting one number, ordinary income of, say, a million dollars on their K-1. They're not going to have white paper disclosures. If there's three trades or businesses, they could have trader business A, B, and C, and you're now going to see how each trader business is doing. So I might be making 600000 from one trader business, 600 from another trader business, and now the last one is losing $200,000. There could be pressure from partners saying, what is this trader business and why are we losing money and who's managing it? So I think RPEs need to take into consideration how much disclosure do you want to do, right? Because it could result in some questions from your partners and your shareholders as to why are certain businesses losing money or why are others making so much relative to the others. So a lot of different considerations. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.